This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Go to the Word of God this morning to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter uh, 27. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. I'm going to read a few verses from verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. And the reason why they thought that was because probably Jesus spoke in Aramaic, maybe even Syriac, but probably Aramaic when he said that. And if you, if you were to read Mark 15, it's slightly different. It's uh, Eloi, Eloi. And so you can understand why they probably thought he was calling for Elijah. Also, the Jews believed at that time that uh, Elijah would be the one who would come and escort you into paradise after you died. And so they automatically assumed that, which wasn't true. And in fact, they ended up taunting him because of that. And so some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Let's just uh, stop right there. This morning we come once again to that place where there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins, that place where the, the church, uh, the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more, uh, that place where we sing about often at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. And so this morning as part of this short series, we're coming to Christ's fourth cry from the cross. There's seven things he said uh, on the cross, and this is the fourth one. And this is probably the most poignant. Uh, I, I don't believe that we will ever plumb the depths of these words. Uh, our limited minds, I believe, can only scratch the surface of this most intimate, most anguished cry from the lips of the Son of God to his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the first three words from the cross, Jesus uh, did as we would expect him to do. It was wholly in keeping with his nature and with his work. Uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, his forgiving, compassionate heart even reached out to those who crucified him. Then to the thief on the cross, the dying thief who repented, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then of course to his dear mother standing there, woman, behold your son, pointing her to John, and to John, behold your mother. But now this fourth statement, and what he said was so unexpected, so uncharacteristic, so unlike him. Now let's remind ourselves briefly of the scene 
that was around the cross. There were those who were antagonistic towards Christ, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests, and of course that jeering, mocking mob that were there. Then there were those who were apathetic. Uh, they could care less. Didn't bother them one way or the other. Those Roman soldiers, that execution squad, they had done that many, many times. That was just another criminal, as far as they were concerned, meeting his grisly end. So what? Who cares? That would be their attitude. Then there would be the angry, apart from those in the crowd, even the, the two thieves in the cross who were angry and cursing and swearing and blaspheming, even at the very Son of God himself, until one of them repented. And then, of course, there was that very small group that were standing there, uh, his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, and then Mary, wife of Cleophas, and then Mary Magdalene, and then, of course, uh, the beloved disciple John. Just five in all who for a while were standing quite close to the cross. And so Jesus now is on the cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, as the old hymn says. He was nailed to the cross at nine in the morning, and he would hang there to three in the afternoon. Six hours he would be on that cross. And in that first three hours, he, he makes three statements. Well, one was a prayer, first of all, Father, forgive them, and the other two were statements. But now something dramatic happens. The sky turns black and whenever the sky turned black it was like it was like midnight at midday and for three hours from 12 o'clock noon to three in the afternoon everything was just black God cast a dark veil over the whole shameful scene at Golgotha now this was no eclipse of the sun as some liberals try to say because eclipses at best only last minutes maybe three minutes this was three hours and because it was Passover time uh, the moon and the sun would not be aligned at that time of the year so it could not have been an eclipse this was no astronomical phase this was supernatural this was God himself silencing those mocking jeering crowds showing his wrath and his judgment that was on display. Now you remember way back in the Old Testament, as Clifford referred to uh, a few moments ago during the period of worship. You remember how that uh, God brought 10 plagues upon Egypt because of what they had done to his people in the land of Goshen. And how the last plague uh, would be the death angel would pass over Egypt and would pass over Goshen with a, with a, with a, those of Israel were living at that time in captivity. And he told them to uh, kill a lamb and to put the blood on the doorpost and the lentils. And if the angels saw the blood on the doorpost and the lentils of their homes, then he would pass over that and death wouldn't fall in that home. But over all of Egypt, every firstborn of both man and beast died when the death angel came because the blood had not been applied, obviously, uh, to their homes. But before that plague happened, the plague just before that was three days of complete darkness. Three days of which the darkness could have been felt, it says. It almost was so thick it could be felt. And that three days preceded the judgment of God, which was death upon Egypt. Now, Egypt 
is usually a type of the world in the Bible. It's a type of the world. And, and God was going to judge Egypt, going to judge the world with death. And the only those who could escape it would be those who applied the blood of the lamb uh, on the doorpost lintels of their homes. That lamb would have to die in their stead. That innocent lamb would have to die in their stead. And here is Jesus, the lamb of God, the one who the Bible says was slain before the very foundation of the world. This was in the plan of God before this world ever even existed. Here he is having to die in our place, taking our place, the punishment we did rightly deserve. He took it upon himself. And the Paschal lamb in the temple would be slain at three o'clock in the afternoon. And Jesus at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's the exact moment when he would die as our lamb dying in our place. What a scary time this must have been when at midday, suddenly, instantly, the sky turned black. A darkness so deep that you could feel it. Now, even in an eclipse, which is very short, the temperature drops and birds stop singing. And they go to rest at their place of roosting. What must have been like for those standing? It says it was over all the land. In fact, some historians say it was over all the earth. Some in Egypt said that they they felt this and saw this too. But at least it was over the land. What must they have felt standing around that cross when, cross when suddenly blackness descended, a black so thick that you could feel it? It must have been scary. And I wonder what the Jews thought at that point, who maybe would remember back then what happened in Egypt when it was three days of darkness. I wonder, do you think, well, this last three days... And during that time, during this three hours, there would be silence. Jesus would not speak another word until three in the afternoon. And then he says several things quickly. But there would be silence in that space of three hours. And I'm sure the crowd were hushed too. Because I'm sure, I'm sure it was a bit scary and I'm sure they were kind of whispering to each other, what does this mean? You know, th things, other things were happening. The veil in the temple was rent and so forth. There was a great earthquake. No wonder the Roman centurion said, surely this must be the Son of God. I mean, he had seen many executions. That was his daily life. But something was different about this. It was as if creation itself was acknowledging its creator on the cross and was hiding his shame. The crown of thorns had already been placed upon his head. And you know that the thorns way back in Genesis became because of the curse. It was one of the immediate signs of the curse that came. And Jesus became a curse for us on that cross. He became sin for us on that cross. Jesus went through the darkness of judgment to save us from utter darkness. 
Because the Bible says that hell is a place of outer darkness, of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This silence is interesting from 12 o'clock midday to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <clears throat> Again, in the Old Testament, when it came to the Passover, either in the tabernacle or in the temple, the high priest would be the one who would perform, who would go into the holiest of holies. He could only do it once a year. But part of the high priest's garments uh, would be this garment, and around the bottom of the garment would be pomegranates and bells. And whenever he moved around, you could hear the tinkling of the pomegranates and the bells, tinkling. But when he had to go into the holiest of holies, he would have to divest himself of that particular garment. And he would have to go in there alone, only he could go there, and only once a year, and he would be in complete silence. And he would offer a sacrifice for himself first. And if that was accepted, then he would offer, offer the other sacrifice, the blood of the lamb that he would sprinkle upon the altar and so forth. Then when that was finished, then he would come out. Then he would put on that garment again with the pomegranates and bells. And then he would begin to walk. And the people would hear that. They would hear the tinkling of those bells again. And they would rejoice because they knew at that point that the blood of the lamb of sacrificial lamb had been accepted by God and even that high priest that he had been accepted he didn't die in there and so they would rejoice that for a whole year their sins would be covered so here's Jesus and he's dying upon that cross and for the space of three hours there was silence he didn't speak a word And only he, and he alone, could complete that work for us. Now the difference, of course, is that that high priest, he had to make an offering for his own sin, and if that was accepted, then he came out again. But Jesus had no sin to make an offering for. He was making an offering for our sin. He was innocent. He was completely and utterly holy and pure. But he made the offering for our sins, that we might be forgiven and the other difference was that he had to die not like that old priest in the, the old high priest in the, New, the old testament he had to die upon that cross not only was he the high priest offering the sacrifice but he was the sacrifice he was the high priest and the sacrifice on that cross and this is the wonder of what Christ has done for us fulfilling all of those old types in the old testament during that period on the cross and so when that three hours were over, then he begins to speak again. And it's during this time, by the way, and he speaks in quick succession, where he, and we'll come to that at a later date, where he cries, it is finished. The work has been complete. And then after the three hours, it says about the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon, he spoke his fourth word from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never in the eternity of eternities did Jesus experience such isolation from his Father. 
Never in the 33 years on earth did he ever feel so abandoned by God. Even in Gethsemane, where he wrestled, where he wrestled with what was coming upon him, and he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. But even then, he felt the Father was with him, and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But if it's not, nevertheless, let your will be done. But here he doesn't say, Father, he says, my God, my God. He felt the separation. He felt the abandonment. He felt he was deserted by God the Father. And in that sense, he was. Because God couldn't look upon him. Because at that moment, he was our sin offering. The sins of the whole world came upon him. The Bible says he was made sin for us. Not that he was sinful, because he never was sinful. He was perfect, sinless. But he became sin at that moment for us. And the Father had to turn away. And he had to suffer that judgment alone. Do you see what I said at the beginning? That we can only scratch the surface of what that actually means. <sighs> the multitudes that he had ministered to for those three years had melted away. The disciples that he had trained had deserted him, had denied him, had betrayed him. There was just one out of the twelve was standing at the cross. He could literally count in one hand how many stood with him. But at least, at least he felt, well, I've got the Father. The Father will never desert me. The Father will never leave me. But he did. He did. In John 8, 29, he says, The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that are pleasing in his sight. In John 16, 33, he says, that Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, talking to his disciples, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Right up to that point on the cross, he never had a second's doubt that the Father would be with him through everything. Should every person leave him, the Father would never leave him. So we can begin to imagine what an awful shock. What a shock that at this moment when he would feel he would need the Father the most, he realized he's left me. He's turned away from me. The awful truth was dawning on him in the, in the enveloping darkness that he had to suffer the wrath of God, God, completely alone. Had God ever abandoned Adam? 
even after Adam sinned, did God not come into the garden again looking for him? Adam, where are you? Had God ever abandoned Noah? Out of the whole world, there was just Noah and his wife and family. Did God abandon them? No. Even though he judged the whole world, he didn't abandon Noah. Did he abandon Moses? There was a period of 40 years when he was in the backside of the wilderness looking after his father and his sheep. And I'm sure there was times when Moses wondered, well, God, where are you? I was the deliverer. I was the one who was supposed to deliver from Egypt. I was born for that. But here I am looking after sheep in the wilderness. But did God abandon him? No, because God came to him in the burning bush and commissioned him to go and to set his people free in Egypt. Did God abandon Elijah when Elijah ran from Jezebel and Ahab? way down to Beersheba, right to the very bottom of the country, and sat under the juniper tree and said, Lord, it's enough, take away my life. Did God abandon him? No. He came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> he came to him where he was. But yet here's Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me, me, of all people, me, your son. But I want you to notice something. And this is very important. Even though he felt God had abandoned him, he didn't abandon God. My God, my God. You see, oftentimes, Christians, if things doesn't work out right, if God doesn't seemingly answer the prayer in the way they wished, if they feel let down, if they feel God hasn't come through for them, what do they do? They abandon God. Stop praying. Stop coming to the house of God. Stop being around God's people. They feel God's let me down. God didn't answer that prayer. And they abandoned God. But here is the Son of God feeling for certain that his own father had abandoned him at the most difficult period of his entire life on earth. And yet he didn't feel he would abandon him. My God. My God. And so you may go through a period where you feel that you're left alone, that God has let you down. And you may be feeling a little bit angry with God. Why did God not help me there? Why did that happen? Why did this not happen? Why, why, why? Be very careful. Be very careful. Don't abandon God. Say, God, like Job says, though God slay me, yet I will trust him. I will come forth as gold. Sometimes we don't understand why that prayer wasn't answered, why that happened, why that didn't happen. And it's a testing time. But be like Jesus, say, my God. He's still my God. I can't understand it, but he's still my God. I don't know why that didn't happen, but he's still my God. 
I can't understand why that healing didn't take place, but he's still my God. Hallelujah. I don't know why I went, business went bust, but he's still my God. And if you have that attitude, he'll bring you right through. Yes. He'll bring you through. Huh. Hebrew Christians, in the book of Hebrews, persecution came, really came, and some of them abandoned God. Hebrews 10, 25, the writer warns them, he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Some walked away. Couldn't take any more. Walked away. The writer of Hebrews says, don't you do that. I know it's tough. I know it's hard. But don't abandon God. Hang in there. He'll bring you through. And so here's Jesus and the words of Psalm 22 rose up within him. Because that's where that comes from. Psalm 22 verse 1. David had been going through a difficult trial in life to the point where he felt God had abandoned him. And he cried out in his trial, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, a thousand years later, a thousand years later, Jesus was well acquainted with Psalm 22. He had learned it from, a, from me as a child. I dare say he quoted the whole Psalm on the cross, although the writer only gives us a few words. But he owns that. He owns that. He remembers what David had prayed and cried in Psalm 22, and he made that his. And that, that's the wonderful thing about God's Word. Whether it's a, a word like that or whether it's a promise. But that was a thousand years old. But Jesus made it a now word for him. It was real for him at that moment. And this is the wonderful thing about the Word of God. It's an ancient text. But it's right up to date. And the Holy Spirit can take a word and make it a living word to you right now. A rhyme word and now word for your life today. Isn't it interesting how that Jesus, in the most difficult period of his life on earth, during the most difficult times, he resorted to the Word of God. In the wilderness temptations, three times, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he quotes from Deuteronomy, from the book of the law, because he was so familiar with it. Here he's quoting from Psalm 22 because he's equally familiar with that. And suddenly in the crises of life, it's the word that rises up in his heart. You see, if you keep putting the word into your heart on a daily basis, trust me, when trouble comes, that word will come up. The Holy Spirit will remind you and the word of God will become now for you. And that promise will become alive, or that statement, or that prophecy, whatever it may be, that will become yours at that point. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is by far the worst thing that happened to Jesus on the cross. 
He doesn't mention the pain and the anguish that he's going through. And it must have been unbearable. The, the closest he gets to it, and the word we'll speak tonight, is I thirst. And if you read through the four gospel accounts of the cross, it hardly says anything at all about the pain, the physical pain and anguish we went through. Because everybody went through that on the cross. Thousands were crucified. Jesus wasn't the only one who was crucified. Thousands were crucified. Those two thieves on the cross, they were equally an agony of body. And so the gospel writers doesn't really focus on that. This is what they focus on. Because this is the thing that was the most painful and hurtful for Jesus to feel abandoned by his father. In Psalm 51, whenever the psalmist eventually, after a year, when he eventually, and the prophet came to him and he repented of his sin with Bathsheba, and he prays that penitent prayer, what does he pray? What's the main thing he prays? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't want to lose your presence, God. You can take everything else, but don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And this is by far the worst thing that happened to Jesus on the cross. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of execution known to man. It was designed to be torturous and to last even days. And apart from anything else, apart from the, the physical pain of being crucified, where you were naked upon a cross and people gobbling at you and jeering at you and birds maybe picking your eyes out of your head. Awful. But all of that, as far as Christ is concerned, peels into significance to the one thing that hurt him the most, that gave him anguish of soul. Apart from agony of body, anguish of soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, right there and then at that moment, Jesus was experiencing the reality that every man and every woman will face if they go into a godless eternity. <coughs> If they go into a Christless grave, as we would say, where they will be completely and utterly. Imagine, 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 imagine forever being forsaken by God, abandoned by God, no hope, no reprieve, no pardon, forever and forever and forever. And right there at that moment, Jesus is tasting that. He's tasting what every man who refuses and rejects God and his message and Christ and his cross will face for all eternity. And at that moment, Jesus is feeling that. You see, when, we, when the Bible speaks about death, there's physical death. Physical death is when your soul leaves your body the spiritual death is a separation of the soul from God 
And everyone who has not received Christ is spiritually dead. They're not connected spiritually with God. But the second death in Revelation 20 is when the spirit or the soul and the body is separated from God forever in the lake of fire. And of that there is no reprieve. That is forever and ever and ever. And Jesus himself at that moment was feeling that desolation, abandonment. That's what he felt. That's what every man will feel throughout all eternity that doesn't receive Christ. Those are not my words. Those are the scriptures. See, Jesus on that cross became our substitute, didn't he? Because God is a holy God, therefore he must punish sin. But God is a merciful God, and he, want, he wanted to make a way for sin to be punished, but for mercy to be shown at the same time. <laughs> Romans 6 and 3, the wages of sin is death, both spiritual and physical. Physical death, by the way, was a result of spiritual death. That started in the Garden of Eden. When Adam, through his sin, found himself separated from God and that relationship had broken down, it took a while, but later on, it took hundreds of years in the early days, but later on he physically died because of that sin, because of that spiritual sin. The wages of sin is death, spiritual and physical, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, when Jesus died on that cross, it wasn't just to forgive us our sins and wipe the slate clean. But it was to give us a new life in him where we wouldn't live a life of sin. Where that debt, debt was paid, but now here's something you can live on. Here's my riches to live on. Jesus both paid the price for our sins and he became God's gift to us of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 Who in his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Glory to God. And so we see here today that Jesus at that moment, as he is dying for us at three o'clock, when he is the true Passover lamb shedding his blood, dying on that cross for us, at that moment, making a covenant with the Father God on our behalf to forgive us our sins and to give us a new life. And this is the wonder and the joy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who but only God could have thought that up? Who but only the Son of God would have paid that price to save us from our sins? 
So you can see we have nothing to boast of. That's why we say we're a sinner saved by grace, because there's nothing within us deserved that or could earn that. We own it because of his grace who gives it to us. My God, my God, why have you forgiven? Why have you forsaken me? Well, he forsook him so that we wouldn't be forsaken. He forsook him that we wouldn't be forsaken. So we can can say that he will be with us forever. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. What a wonderful story is the cross, amen? What a beautiful story is the cross. Lord, we take these moments just to just to soak in the reality of the tremendous price that you paid at Calvary for us. Lord Jesus, how could we as mere human beings ever fully grasp those words that you spoke? But as best we can today, we thank you for them. As best we can today, we have tried to understand something of it. Lord, put this word deep into our hearts. That whenever we think of the cross, we think of that supreme sacrifice that you paid for us. Lord, how much you must love us that you would have given so much for us. So we praise you and we give you thanks for your many, many blessings in our lives, but most of all, for the gift of life that we have received freely from you. This we thank you for. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.